Okay, if you would please turn to 1 John chapter 3. I'll be reading 1 John chapter 3 verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him? How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired Everlasting word to our souls. And Father, because of that, I feel a great weight and gravity here. That I would not block the flow of the truth of this passage because of my sin. but I would be a conduit, an expositor, an unfolder of what is clearly here for every eye in here to look at their own Bibles and see. Help me to that end. And help us hear with the ears of our heart. Help us see with the eyes of our affection. And thus, glory all the more during this Christmas season that you have come to work such things in the Beloved, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Okay, if you remember, last week we were in this passage, and yet I spent the entire sermon just on the foundation, the, the source of loving each other in the body of Christ. We saw that it was the miracle of new birth or new life that when a person is raised spiritually from the dead, it is from there there's a result. An affection in the heart that acts itself out in loving others. Or to say it in short, a crucial evidence of those who have been born again is loving others. Verse 14, remember? We know that we have passed out of death into life 
Because we love the brothers, whoever does not love abides or remains in death. We saw last week that new life, new joy in God inevitably produces an overflow of meeting the needs of other people that come into our paths. Now, John's discussion here in this passage of love begins in verse 10. And then where we pick up in verse 11, you see the word for, which means now what he does in this paragraph is he unfolds his contention of verse 10 about loving others is the sign that you are born again or that you belong to God. So let's just feel the flow again. Start with verse 10. By this... It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice, there's a a direction in life here, who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Why, John? Why do you say that? He answers, starting with verse 11. See the word for? Why? Because this is the message that we have heard from the beginning when the gospel came to you. Here it is. That we should love one another. Okay, let me pause for a moment. Does that sound familiar? These phrases, John began this letter that way. For instance, the very first verse of the letter. That which was from the beginning. And there he means from the beginning of the message coming to you. Ephesus, you believers. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen, etc. And he goes and he unfolds this message about Jesus Christ the eternal one who became truly one of us, a genuine human being, physical. We touched him, we heard him, etc. This was core message, vertical gospel incarnation of Christ. And then in chapter 1, verse 5, he, listen to the language, this is the message we have heard from him. And we proclaim to you, here it is, that God is light and in Him there's no darkness at all. So that radical theology, verticalness of the gospel message. So in chapter 1, John, he said, this is the message. This is what we've heard from the beginning. And you have this robust theology of the person of Jesus Christ, which is central to your salvation. Then you get to chapter 3. He says again, this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, and it's radically horizontal. How you treat other persons. And in John's context, specifically, how you treat other believers. The brothers love one another. The gospel message is incomplete unless it includes both 
the vertical that we saw last week. Are you alive to God through the message of Jesus Christ? If you are, there will be evidence that overflows in the horizontal. Love one another. What I want to do, I want to flash back into church history for a moment. In the second century, just about maybe 40 years after John wrote this letter, all the apostles are dead. And you say, well, what's the church? What are they, how are they reading the same text? And how are they living? Well, we have a writing from a guy who became a Christian. He was a philosopher, came to Christ, and he became an apologist. And he wrote a letter to the emperor, Hadrian, saying, because, you know, persecution would happen. I mean, Christianity is this weird thing, and they didn't worship the gods of the different cities, the Greek and the Roman gods and stuff. And there's tension through that. And he, as an apologist, he argues to the emperor, listen to me, emperor, you should be happy there are Christians in your empire. And here's his argument, and this is what he writes, quote, Now the Christians... O King, have the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself engraven on their hearts. And they observe looking for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. They commit neither adultery nor fornication, nor do they bear false witness. They honor father and mother and love their neighbors. They give right judgment, and they do not worship idols in the form of man. They do not unto others that which they would not have done unto themselves. They comfort such as wrong them and make friends of them. They labor to do good to their enemies as for their servants or handmaids or their children if any of them has any, they persuade them to become Christians for the love that they have towards them. And when they have become so, Christians, they call them, without distinction, brethren. They despise not the widow and grieve not the orphan. He that has distributes liberally to him that has not. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as if he were their very brother. For they call themselves brethren. Not after the flesh, but after the Spirit in God. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it's possible that he may be delivered, ransomed, takes money, they deliver him. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and they don't have enough abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. For Christ's sake, 
they are ready to lay down their own lives. End quote. Stunning that in the year 133 A.D., Aristides says, that's the Christian church. He must have read 1 John. This death, as we saw last week, spiritual death into life, this, as John puts it, walking in the light of loving the family of God, it is not an add-on to Christianity. It is central. It's part and parcel of the message you've heard from the beginning. So, as we work our way through this passage this morning, it's going to be in two big parts. The first is fairly brief, to just to show the clarity of John as he argues that loving the brothers in the body, the sisters in the body of Christ, love for the family is an essential evidence of genuine faith in Jesus. So we'll go first, and then secondly, we're going to ask the question, what is love? And we let the text answer it. So first, love is the evidence. The logic that John lays out before us, worded differently, is something like this. You know that your car has been started because you see the exhaust coming out the exhaust pipe. If you see the exhaust coming out the exhaust pipe, you don't conclude exhaust is coming out and that exhaust started the car. No. The exhaust is the evidence that someone turned the key and started the car. That's John's logic. Verse 14. We know that the exhaust is coming out of the car. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. I got that all backwards. Because exhaust is coming out of the car. We know that the ignition has been started because there's exhaust. We know that we've been born of God out of spiritual death into spiritual life because of the exhaust of loving our brothers. Whoever does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, positively, John says, a lifestyle of loving proves that you, the car, have been turned on by the Spirit. Raised out of spiritual death into spiritual life, which I laid out last week. Now, on the contrary, the negative is also true. Verse 14, the end of it, therefore, whoever does not love 
remains in spiritual death. And then he goes on to argue for that statement in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So in other words, being raised with Christ, or another New Testament term, new birth, being born of God, it means that person possesses within them eternal life. A new nature which causes them to love mercy towards others. And therefore... If one shows no sign of loving, week after week, and month after month, then John is saying it's clear they're still in spiritual death. They've never been raised to new life in Christ, no matter their profession of belief in Jesus. Why does he say it? Because for John, in his head somehow, he has this idea, if there's no love, it's not there. We're not seeing it at all. There's no care. There's no concern. There's no action. Then you hate. You, you see the plight of that person hanging on a cliff. And you look. They don't have time. He says, that's vicious. And he says, Jesus' people who have eternal life, the life of God Himself abiding in Him, don't close their heart to that person hanging on the cliff. That's His logic. Now, just for a moment, why, why, why is it this stunning statement here? Uh, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Okay. What's John doing? What's he saying? He's saying it because to John, and I'm going to agree with him, to John, loving the way he means loving others and hating, they are first, before the actions of love and the actions of hate, they are first a heart issue. That's what he's driving at. In other words, John is not stupid. He knows the difference between taking the sword and actually plunging it into the belly of somebody and twisting it until they're dead. He knows the difference between that and only feeling like you want to, but you don't. The point is, though, he, that's not what he's addressing here. He's not unfolding the difference of the actions that flow out of the heart. He's getting to this main point. In the heart, there's no difference ultimately. In action, there's a difference, but that's not his point. In the heart, there's not. Hate, think about it. I hate that person. It is to despise that other person. I'm going to cut off, therefore, from my hatred, relationship from them. That's what's going on in heart. No actions. Murder is the fulfilling of that attitude. 
And so whether you've got the actual action there that does it all the way and gets rid of the person so that they're totally cut out of my life and can't come back in this mortal life, or you just still have in your heart that same attitude, he says that doesn't dwell with eternal life in that person. It's, it's, it's essentially what Jesus said, isn't it, in Matthew 5? You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, we understand he means this murderous hatred and despising, this angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. Why would Jesus say that? Because lifestyles of love and lifestyles of hate reveal whether a person has been brought out of spiritual death into spiritual life. This issue of loving each other starts in the heart and it produces actions. It's not trivial. It's not peripheral. It's not optional. It is the fruit on the tree of true Christians. That's what Jesus went on to say in Matthew 7. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. But the rotten tree produces bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So Jesus is clear. To say you are a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Only God makes persons Christians and turns the engine on we saw last week. There's evidence, an exhaust pipe. There's evidence, genuine affections, care that flow out of a genuine joy and love and desperateness for God and loving His mercy towards you, a sinner in your maze at His grace in all of its areas from His special grace to saving you and that you have food in your mouth today and then that overflows in an affection for others who are in Jesus, how you live. And that's why John concludes this passage with little children. Let us not love in word or in deed, meaning merely, but in deed. Excuse me. Let's not love in word or in talk merely, but in deed and truth. He, by that word truth there, he most likely means not truth of Scripture here, but he means genuinely affection, love for them. So, that's the first thing. That love, you can't create it. God is working in every believer. You're attached to the vine. This is coming out. Part of being attached to the vine means He commands you to do it and thus, by the Spirit of Christ, you are listening and you hear and you 
turn and you turn and you move and you cry out and say, why is my heart so hard? Soften it, Lord. That's what believers do. So first, that love is the evidence of new birth in Christ. Now, the second question is this then. What is it? What is love? In our passage, John gives two contrasting examples. The negative, what it's not, and the positive, what it is. So first, let's go to the negative in verse 12. Cain. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. So, I'm just going to assume you all have heard last week's sermon. And so if you've been following the flow of John's thought in this passage, Cain for John represents worldly persons. Represents those like all of us who are born in this world as children of wrath. Who are born spiritually dead to God. Cain is their representative in this passage to John. They're not of God. They are of the evil one. And so he goes back. You remember Genesis 4. Cain murders his brother Abel. Well, remember the context. They knew. Creator. We give to him the first fruits of our living. Abel. He's a shepherd of sheep. His brother Cain is a farmer. Abel brings the best of his, offers it to God. Cain brings one of his pumpkins, or whatever he was growing, and offers it to God. And something happened in Cain. He knew, and it became clear, that God was pleased with Abel's offering, and he was displeased with Cain's. And Cain was angry about it. And it produced a hatred toward his brother. Okay, question though. Stop. Why was Abel's acceptable? It's not because Abel's was an animal and he shed the blood of the sheep. And Cain's was just a vegetable. It's not the reason. Cain, if you do right, you have to do something that's gone in the heart of Cain. And when you turn to the New Testament, in Hebrews 11.4, it's clear. Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God because Abel was brought out of death into life. Now, it doesn't say that. It says it this way. He had a heart of faith. Which, you understand the Bible, that would have been an impossibility without God causing Abel to be born again. The difference there, both born into sin and then 
sometime in his life, Abel came alive to God through a new birth and thus had a heart of delight and faith. When he was offering his first fruits, he was thrilled. Yes! You can have it all, God. You only want one? That was his heart. Oh my God. And that was pleasing to God. Cain offered his. That wasn't in there. Since Abel's was acceptable by faith according to he, Hebrews 11.4, therefore Cain's was not offered with a heart of faith because he was still dead to God in his trespasses and sins. That's the biblical logic. He wasn't born again like Abel. Okay, then what happens? Come on, brother. He takes him out to a field. Who knows? He used a big, huge rock. I don't know. Smashed his head in and he killed him. Where'd that come from? It didn't just come out of nowhere. Actions never come out of nowhere. They come out of a heart. They came out of his heart of hatred toward his brother. Why did Cain kill him? John answers. Because his Cain's deeds, which came out of his nature, sin nature, born in sin, Cain's deeds were evil. That's why. And his, well, his brothers were righteous. So Cain, as an unregenerate man, he had no saving faith. He hated God. He hated the idea of God's rule and His authority and His power and God's glory. He really, from his heart, had no taste to enjoy that. Instead, he was like his mother. When the thought came into Eve's head, God only is ruling over you, telling you not to eat of that tree. Because he knows the day you eat it, you're going to be just like him. Cain was born in that state. I want to be God. Meaning, I don't want to be dependent on anybody. I don't want to be like a child to a creator who is the source of my joy. I will be at the top. That was in his heart. So he hated God and thus his brother became one of God's children. And he hated him therefore because he reflected something of this God. Remember last week the analogy like a piano cane just going from his nature. Yeah, he offered deeds. Here it is. I sacrificed. I gave of my income. And he was out of tune. A piano totally out of tune. Played the same notes, same time, his brother Abel. But Abel's piano somehow got retuned by new birth. And Cain's didn't. Abel's was acceptable. Because as a sinner, this miracle of I'm alive to God. 
You should be treasured. You should be good. Dependence. Yes, dependence. Joy. Worship. And his action revealed the sin in the action of sacrifice of his brother Cain. And that ticked him off. It was threatening to Cain and produced hatred horizontally toward his brother. And right now today on this planet, every human being who is outside of Jesus Christ has not been raised at a spiritual death into spiritual life. Every one of them has a deep-seated hatred toward God, even in their religion. As Paul said in Romans 8, verses 7 to 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile against God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, therefore, cannot please God. Here's my pumpkin. Utterly displeasing. Cain. And you can read the conversation in Genesis. Cain, if you change your heart, you'll be just like your brother. If you do right, you're not doing right. All unregenerate people are aligned with Cain because they're not of God. They're of the devil. They're of the evil one. They're against God and thus there's a fruit. They're against God's people. That's why John goes on to say in the next sentence, Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that non-believers in the world and in the church, many worldly people are in church life, don't be surprised that they hate you because the same devil who inspired Cain is the father of all who are not in Christ. The world hates those who love Jesus. Why? Because those who have been born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they're around, there's something about that that makes those who are outside of Christ feel condemned. Feel lost. Feel judged. Because believers' testimony says, God changed my heart. And He did it through this message of what happened in history through His Son, Jesus Christ, 
who is the eternal God becoming a human being in order that he would be slaughtered on a cross by God where God's anger and wrath toward me, a sinner, or any sinner who wants him, would be punished. And they hear it. They hear you're calling me a person who deserves an eternal damnation. I'm telling you there's a salvation from it. You're calling me that and there's anger. They may express it in all kinds of hypocrisy and how they like you and love you. But there's an anger. There's a hatred deep down. And Cain, as an example, then lashes out. Okay, here's John's point. Believer, don't be like Cain. But positively, love like Jesus. Verse 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In other words, John is saying that because we have been raised from death into new life, we are no longer like Cain. Therefore, there's something in us that is an, it's an, this gnawing oughtness. We ought. We should follow that oughtness and lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus' willing, self-sacrificial death reveals the essence of love. And, John says, it is our example. Jesus' love here involved the greatest possible sacrifice. And, and what this shows, what John is showing us here, is that love takes, true love takes the welfare or the joy of the other person so seriously that it may cause the one who loves that person's welfare to sacrifice their own personal well-being on one level for the good of the other. So think about it. What's the, what's the most precious possession you have? Your life, isn't it? That old skit, Robert comes up, puts the gun at the head. Money or your life? Now, the joke is, well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. But <laughs> no matter how much you got, don't take my life. Take every penny I have here. 
And therefore, to rob a person of that, you can rob them of all kinds of things on earth, which is evil and it's sin. You rob them of that possession. It's called murder. That's why Cain brings it up. The reverse of that is what? To so care for the welfare of another that one would give up his own mortal life for them. That's the greatest possible expression of love. It's how Jesus said it in John 15, 3. Greater love has no one than this, than that one, and he's referring to himself, laid down his life, his mortality, for his friends. So think about what John's doing here. Cain's hatred produced murder. Jesus' love produced self-sacrifice unto a brutal death. But I want you to notice and I want you to look at your text very carefully. It's easy to pass over and don't miss it. Jesus laid down His life. Next phrase. For us. He didn't just die. He did it willingly for us. In other words, His action really actually met a deep need that we had. It brought brought peace between us God. It brought peace with God toward us. That's love. It brought the Holy Spirit to indwell, dwell us. It brought forgiveness. It brought eternal hope and surety of the resurrection of the dead. He was actually doing something for us in the act. Now, why do I say that? Because we human beings can give money, stuff, Time, labor, work, all kinds of things. Give them up. And it not be love. Have you ever had a person give you anything? Thank you. Cost them. It was a sacrifice. So was Cain's was a sacrifice. It cost them. Cost them a pumpkin. And they, they give you something. The cost sacrificial, or, or they do something for you, you're, you're grateful, then you start to, re, start to realize, oh my gosh, they'll never let me forget it. And, and now there's just like this, this, this tension, this, this enslavement to them because of what they did. That's not Jesus' love. That's not love. It wasn't for, evidently, it wasn't for your well-being and your joy. Oh, you're, you're happy? I gave that to you. That makes me happy. We're done. No more transaction. My joy is that you are happy and you're eating today. Or whatever else. That is. You have someone being overly helpful, but you ask them, please don't help me that way. No, I'm going to help you. you know, when the most loving thing would have been for them to listen to you. That would have been loving. Please, hear me. Don't do this. And they do it. Okay. 
Here's a text. Here's a a biblical text for. You can do all kinds of quote-unquote sacrificial things that cost you. Even your very life. And it not necessarily be an act of love. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13.3 If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my mortality, my physical body to be burned and killed, but have not love, stop. Paul couldn't have said that unless he agreed with what I just said. You can, Paul, you can give away every possession. You can give away your life and it not necessarily be love, concern for the other. Evidently. He says, therefore I gain nothing. But here's Jesus' example. Jesus gave up His life for us. He did it in order to meet our deepest need. Not only that, His action, which you talk about sacrifice. A sacrifice is, at its core, in and of itself, I don't delight to release this or experience this. That's sacrifice. If there's no goal for the sacrifice, but it's just the action of being tortured to death on the cross. Jesus did not look at that as pleasurable or joyful. But He did that from a heart of joy. And that heart of joy was that it was going to create an eternal joy for all who will be saved. And it is His joy For that future goal, their joy, that caused him to act. You all know the text, right? Hebrews 12, verse 2. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So for us believers to follow in Jesus' steps, it means that we should seek to find our joy in acts of service for the joy of the other person we're serving. Even at temporal sacrifice to ourselves. This is perfectly illustrated in 2 Corinthians 8. I want you to turn there for a moment. 2 Corinthians 8. Down to verse 8. Just listen to what Paul's going to do here for a minute. He says in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness, the earnest example of others that, Corinthians, that your love also is genuine. Okay, now stop. I'm going to go back now. 
Why did he say that? Because of what he said leading up to that, starting with verse 1. Let me just give a context. Paul has been filtering through all the churches in Asia Minor and over in Macedonia and Achaia for a couple years, raising as much money for other believers. The Jewish church in Judea, they were smacked really hard with famine. They're really in need. Okay, and so... He's saying, Corinthians, when I get that, I don't even want to talk about this. Just have it ready to go. And so this is how he appeals to them, starting with verse 1. We want you to know, Corinthians, our brothers, about, he uses now an example of another church, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in the region of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and mixed with their extreme financial poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Now here, they were begging us. Paul, Paul, Paul. They're begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then, by the will of God, to us. He says, come on, be like them. It flows out of your joy in God. And that's the joy of serving and meeting the needs of those whom you have the opportunity to. And then in verse 8 he says, the reason I gave you this whole example is to prove that your love is genuine also like that. Isn't it? Back to 1 John. Then, in verse 17, the essence of love is fleshed out for us by John. Look at verse 17, chapter 3. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him? How does God's love abide in him? Okay. John lays out two conditions there. Okay. The first is, have the world's goods. Stuff. That means everyday life stuff. The resources that are needed for life. Shelter and food and clothing and money to buy food, etc., etc. That's what he's talking about. The world's goods. It's really the word in Greek, bios. You know, some of you are in biology right now. And biology, it's where we get it from. Life, the word for life. But this word bios, life, is the same word he had used back in chapter 2. 
verse 16 to refer in a negative sense to those who don't love the Father but love the world. He says, and the pride or the arrogance of life, meaning in your money, in your wealth, in your homes, your cars. And look at me! Okay, so it's the same word. He means, you have the stuff, the money, houses, goods, food, all of those things, according to chapter 2, can be used as vehicles of godlessness, worldliness, idolatry. And in chapter 3, those same things can be the vehicle of loving others. So that's the first condition. He, you have the world's good stuff. Okay, second is this. Okay, now. Then you see your brother. Here he means fellow Christian. In need. John's point is this. Both of those conditions are met. Christian, you can't do nothing he says, if those two conditions are met, now I got the stuff, but I, I see that that would really help them. And I, I, I got it. And you close up your feelings, your empathy toward that brother or sister in Jesus. Are you sure? This is a disappointment. It's rhetorical. Are you sure that you love God? That's what love of God means in the Greek. It's, a, it's an objective genitive. Not God loving us there. It's our loving God. How does the lo- your loving God actually live in you if that is your, the way you walk through life? It's his point. That, that phrase closes his heart. It's not the word for heart, actually, in the Greek. It's not the word cardia. Cardiology, here it's where we get it from. It's not that word like the Bible uses a lot in the New Testament, but it's actually the word splankna, which is even deeper. I mean, it, it, it means your guts, your visceral feelings. And he says, and okay, you see it. You got the stuff, you're walking by, you're in church, and then you know the need, but uh uh-uh, uh, you, you take. Those visceral feelings where you should feel and want to cry and help and find your joy and help. And you just say, nope, shut it down. No pity. If you know you've passed from death to life, he's saying, you cannot continue to walk that way. You cannot bottle up your splankna if you're truly born again. You might for a moment or three. But you can't continue. Or if you do, it's going to be an evidence. You don't really have those Holy Spirit-produced empathy going on in you. You can't continue to bottle it up. It will inevitably flow out of you. And therefore, that's why John just simply asserts, if... There is no outflow, 
starting from the heart of joy that's so happy to meet the need. If there's no outflow going on through the walk of your life, then it's evidence. There's no inflow. How does eternal life abide in you? It doesn't. The eternal one, God the Holy Spirit, He's saying then, isn't in you. This first 17, it just brings the Christian life down to the everyday nitty-gritty of life. If you have the world's goods, and you see your brother and Lord in need, you close your heart up against him. Are you sure you're born of God? Is his point. Aristides in AD 133 says, You should be happy that the church exists. This is how we live. Now, many of us may say, Look, after my off the top initial giving, I do, I give, I give, I give. Absolutely no matter what you get. After that, I pay my bills, my gas, my rent, my mortgage, clothes, education for the children. There really is no, nothing left when I see. I, how am I going to pay that person's rent that just got laid off? I don't have anything left. Many people will say that, and here's the only response I have. I understand it. But like everybody else, you have the same allotment of time each day. You've got 24 hours. There's time you can give. You've got ears on your head. You can give a listening ear to someone in pain, and grief, and struggle. You've got a mouth share truth, pray for them. God lays something on your heart and say, I'm going to text them this passage of Scripture. You can be a friend. You can visit the elderly. But if we say, let me just close my heart. If we close our hearts to those of us who are in pain and in grief or who are hungry for food or shelter or they're in sin but that they're yearning to help me repent and uh, close my heart, I don't have time. I don't want to have sacrifice. My schedule's filled. I don't want to mess with it. Do we really know Jesus and love God? Our resources, we all have them. They are money and time and hospitality and wisdom and care and listening more than we speak and prayer and go on and on. But where does all that come from? Here's the text in one close. John says, this is the Christian life. Aristides, later on, this is it. Where does it come from? It comes 
from constantly having our needs met in Jesus. It comes from taking and banking your money and your time and your talents and your prayers, banking them, not at Chase, but storing up treasures in heaven which free us to take John seriously. To be like Jesus who laid down His life sacrificially for the joy set before Him. That's His argument in the text. We know that we have passed out of spiritual death into spiritual life. How do we know it? Because look, we love the brethren. And so as I began last week's sermon, we all know the difference. There's billions of people on earth that affect your heart. That's okay. That's, that's life. It's not, not supposed to affect your, your life like your children, your parents, your brothers, and your sisters. He puts us in families. We have particular affections. And so the question is, do you have a special bond with others within the family of God, the brothers. Are you of God with others in the body of Christ? Is there evidence that you belong to Jesus, shown by your money, your time, your affection, your service, your prayers, and your joy in being spent for them. Evidence that you have come out of death into life because you love the brothers. We're to conclude this sermon with John's words from verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in action and genuinely from the heart. As we're singing, the cup, the bread will be passed out. And this is going to be a joyous time. Jesus came into the world in order to purchase the promised new covenant in His blood. And thus, in order to purchase that miraculous living of loving the brothers. And so what we're doing, if you are a baptized believer, partake and hold and we'll pray over together. We are prayerfully saying as we, as the body of Christ, the brothers and the sisters, saying... Oh, Lord Jesus, work these truths even more so in our lives. Father, thank You. Oh, would You do this? Would You do this, Father? Would You give each and every one of us a deeper sense as we're alone praying and thankful that we're alive to You through Your Son to know that 
that brother and that sister is alive just like me. They're in the same sheepfold. They're in the same family. Oh, help us feel it with our splankna, the guts in our hearts, and help us, therefore, from there, be more liberal with our serving of each other to the glory of Jesus. Amen.